Good afternoon. This is KSC on 1080 AM 104.1 FM. It is 2.06 and time for Planet Watch. Welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Maya Rodriguez. And I'm Joe Jordan. And I'm Joe Jordan. <laughs> Today on the program, Ruby Rorty, an emerging leader on the national and world environmental scene, talking with us about her various involvements, including particularly some new efforts to stop further plastic pollution in our oceans. In addition to whatever wonders we can call upon from science, nature, and technologies, the greatest promise of all will be coming from our youth. Ruby's a high school student here in Santa Cruz County. Yeah, you can subscribe to our Planet Watch podcast by going to planetwatchradio.com. That's planetwatchradio.com. You can also support this program at patreon.com which is a crowdfunding platform for media and artistic efforts that's patreon spelled p-a-t-r-e-o-n so you go to patreon.com slash planet underscore watch and we'd like to thank michael zwirling for sponsoring this program on our local radio station ksco santa cruz but first here are some top science environmental stories from this week. First with Tommy. Yeah, this has to do with our topic this week. Last year, China decided to end its importation of plastics from around the world with a ban on the waste through 2030. That could lead to 111 million tons of plastic without a place to go, according to a study published in the journal Science. This realization has led to cities around the country taking drastic measures like banning recycling of certain plastics and lifting restrictions of dumping plastics into landfills. Some nations like Vietnam, Thailand, and Malaysia have taken on some of the plastic, but don't have the infrastructure China had to take on some 45% of the world's plastic waste. Meanwhile, other countries around the world are moving forward, like India, who recently announced a plan to ban single-use plastics by 2022. According to a recent report by the UN, 50 countries are considering bans on plastic bags. Without major shifts in the way we think about the use of these products, the 4,000 shipping containers every day that we used to send to China will start to build up. Thank you, Tommy, for that story. And I'm sure our guest, Ruby, is going to have some things to say about those various issues. I hope so. And in more news, researchers at the University of Oregon are developing a way to measure the amount of methane being released from the ocean floor by recording the sound of methane bubbles. Using a hydrophone, scientists are able to identify the acoustic signature of methane bubbles and determine the volume of methane based on their frequencies. The higher the frequency, the smaller the bubble, meaning less methane. And the lower the frequency, the bigger the bubble, meaning more methane. In recent years, scientists have found hundreds of bubble streams coming from the methane deposits off the Pacific Northwest coast, but they have no way to measure how much methane is stored in these deposits. According to the journal Deep Sea 2, these methane deposits have the potential to be a new energy source, but it also poses a threat as a potent greenhouse gas. Researchers say the next step is to perfect their acoustic method to be able to accurately detect both the volume and the rate of methane coming from the sea floor. Yeah, and it wor it's worth saying they're pointing out, uh, a lot of people may be aware of this, but, you know, carbon dioxide is the 
uh, most abundant culprit in our warming of the atmosphere, uh, which largely comes from burning of fossil fuels for various things. But uh, methane, there's less of it being emitted from various places uh, naturally and human-caused. But it's a much more potent greenhouse gas by a factor of, you know, something on the order of 20-some-odd, much more powerful at trapping infrared radiation than is carbon dioxide. So a little bit of methane goes a long way in the, in the bad sense. Um, uh, and actually, this technology, this, this system that Maya just told us about, um, this is something I would normally do at the end of the show in the oddball stuff, but I think I just got to say it now because it segues <laughs> into this. There's a really cool experiment you can do in your kitchen. Uh, if you run really hot water in your kitchen sink, and tell me, think back if you have observed this. Sometimes you pour that hot water, if you run it kind of slowly, run the slow water tap slowly, you fill up a glass with the hot water. D d tell me if you folks r recognize this. Does it sometimes seem to be really cloudy in, in the... Mm -hmm. Even though it's clean, clear water, it's very cloudy because it has lots and lots of micro bubbles in it. And then if you let it sit, that cloudiness kind of clears away from the bottom towards the top. Well, if you take the glass while that's happening and tap on the bottom, hold it uh, just with two fingers and then tap on the bottom of the glass, the, the pitch of the sound that you will get, it, it's, it changes by like three or four octaves as those bubbles clear away because the bubbles actually uh, uh, affect the, the speed of sound in the water, in your glass, <laughs> and, and the, the frequency is determined by the height of your glass. And so as the bubbles clear away, you can hear the sound of your taps change. I should actually make a, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a recording. Can't do it here in the studio because we don't have a hot water tap here, but I can make a recording of this and play it for you sometime. So anyway, try that and email us. Email us if you get some results. And by the way, I'll go ahead and say, because we should say several times every show, you can email us during this show and between shows at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And uh, Tommy and uh, Maya are going to be monitoring the computers uh, for your cards and letters, <laughs> your emails. So radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. You'll be able to ask our guest a question, make comments, and uh, maybe some of you can actually try that experiment during the next hour <laughs> if you want a little distraction. Okay. And now for our guest. Ruby Rorty is an environmental educator and advocate from Santa Cruz, California, where she grew up in and around the Pacific Ocean. At 14, she founded the Santa Cruz Environmental Alliance, a youth-led organization with the goal of empowering young people in the Bay Area as ocean defenders capable of addressing coastal plastic pollution. Since then, she has written and instituted the Trashtastic curriculum for grades 3 to 5, founded the hashtag No More Mermaid Tears campaign against plastic, and created social media internship opportunities for middle schoolers. Although she continues to work locally, Ruby has now joined the International Cons Conservation Community as a youth leader for the Earth Echo International, a board member for CS3 Game Changers with the Green Sports Alliance, and a public speaker on youth justice and the environment at events around the world. She will attend the University of Ch Chicago starting next fall. There, she plans to study journalism, public policy, and economics, all in the context of environmental change and sustainability. Welcome, Ruby. Thank you. Yeah, we first met Ruby, uh, at least Tommy and I did. Uh, there was a big rally uh, back in, I don't know, February, 
remarks when they were threatening to institute offshore oil drilling here along our coast in California again, and that threat is still real and still exists. We need to still beat that back. But anyway, there was a big rally down in, in Santa Cruz uh, near the ocean, Cowell's Beach, and Ruby spoke there and was uh, gave quite a galvanizing little speech, and uh, we met her afterwards and uh, have stayed connected. And, and by the way, another person who spoke at that was another person we interviewed on this show, Dan Hafley, who has long been a hero of protect. He was one of the, if there's one person you can point to who is the reason why we don't have offshore oil drilling on California's coast now, that was Dan Hafley, who, who is about to retire, actually, from uh, Save Our Shores, uh, or the O'Neill Sea Odyssey. Uh, he's been involved with both those organizations. By the way, so Ruby, uh, yeah, trash-tastic was what <laughs> Maya just read there. You might need to move a little closer to your mic or pull it closer to you. But tell us a little bit about Trash-tastic, and then I'm sure Maya and Tommy and others out there in Radioland will have questions for you. Absolutely. So Trash-tastic was a curriculum that I wrote and instituted in local elementary schools, and that was last year. My goal with Trash-tastic was to really engage the youth members of our community in the conversation around plastic pollution. Because as much as Santa Cruz is known as a green place and a green town, I see that young people are frequently not represented at the conservation conversation. And so it's a three-part curriculum. We start by talking about waste systems, so what plastic is, how it's made, and where it goes. And then the second lesson is on the impact of plastic on marine ecosystems and, um, you know, the degree to which it messes with our ecosystems and how that can get back to humans and impact human health. And then the third lesson is where we really work on taking that step from education to advocacy and empower these students who are 8, 9, 10 as not just learners about plastic, but advocates and artists around it. So uh, during the third lesson, I have them make fish out of plastic water bottles, plastic utensils, and straws that I collect from around town that uh, are frequently contaminated, so they might not be recyclable. And uh, yeah, we make very colorful fish, and it helps them be a part of an art advocacy movement as opposed to just feeling disparaged by all the bad news around plastic pollution. So I was very excited. I've worked with several classrooms locally, and I hope to continue it. I've also sent the curriculum to people around the country who are doing plastic education. So hopefully the trash-tastic message is spreading. Hmm. Yeah, well, what kind of feedback uh, or stats or whatever do you have to kind of you know, be able to document how much progress uh, the, that that idea, that, that program is making so far. Absolutely. So data is one of the most important things uh, when talking about an idea. Um, I've presented Trashtastic to thousands of people, including adults at environmental conferences. Um, and so with young kids, I've made over 100 plastic, plastic fish and octopi um, and worked with dozens of students on it, uh, if not over a hundred. So that's all interesting stats. But for me, when you're working with kids, it's much less about the numbers and the data and much more about the human impact that your work has on individuals. And so the best, the best data I can give you from Trashtastic is when a third grade student at Westlake Elementary, who I worked with, uh, turned to me while we were making the fish and said it was the most fun he'd ever had in school. And for me, that means a lot more than uh, how many kids I've worked with because I think that... If you can even help one kid be empowered as an advocate and have them work with these issues throughout high school and beyond, um, that means the most. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of 
having fun while kicking ass and doing some good in the world. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's great. Um, well, Maya and Tommy are your peers here, or approximately in the same age range, <laughs> way, you know, less than half my age, or a third of my age. But uh, anyway, well, why don't you all have a little conversation, talk amongst yourselves here on the air a bit. Uh, yeah, so I was wondering, like, when you started thinking about wanting to have an impact with younger kids, how do you kind of jump on that board? Like, how do you get into contact with these schools and say, like, hey, I have a lesson plan for these kids? Right. So you can't just go up to eight-year-olds and be like, hey, can I come talk to your class about plastic pollution? I think educators are the most powerful communication point for uh, people in the general public communicating with kids. So I reached out to teachers. I talked to teachers who I knew were interested in sustainability because they'd been at talks or lectures I gave. Um, and I really worked with teachers. So it was a collaborative effort to include some sustainability in their curriculum. Uh, but I figure that, you know, at 17, as I was then, I was a better person to be bringing the message to eight-year-olds than, uh, you know, a grown-up would be because, you know, I'm more on the same page. I'm like a big kid myself. <laughs> <laughs> and did you find that you had a lot of peers your own age that were into the same topic or were they as involved with environmental issues as you? Right. I think one of the most frustrating things working as an environmental advocate is that it can feel really lonesome. Um, and because we're working with planet-sized problems, as our tagline says, um, it, it can feel really lonely because it's unlikely that many teens in your area, I know there weren't very many in my area, would be as active in the movement as you were. But I did have, uh, I co-developed Trashtastic with my friend Kaya McMurdo. She's a local artist, so she helped design the art project and instituted it with me. And I had several other teen volunteers work with me on that project, so that was great. Um, but really, my saving grace over the past four years that I've been working in environmentalism has been connecting with young people around the world who are doing similar work to me in their communities. And I think that this network helps us feel like rather than, you know, working tirelessly at small projects just in our hometown, we're part of sort of this global mosaic of youth movement around that. So that's, that's been what's been most helpful to me. Mm. Work, working with uh, young kids around the world, I guess, do you see a generational shift from working with them for when you're presenting to older audiences? Absolutely. Uh, it's hard to tell whether that's because our generation is totally different than any other generation before us or whether kids just have a special magic, um, you know, when it comes to understanding things. But um, I absolutely think that the kids I talk to are better educated about these issues than many of the adults I talk to. And that's because they have access to social media, to YouTube earlier on. And I think that we're finally at a place where parents are having more and more honest conversations with their kids about environmental change because we're starting to see, especially in places like Santa Cruz, a shift in the perceived urgency of environmental change. So I know my parents started talking about these issues with me at like five because they understood that it was something that would impact me in my lifetime. So I do see kids, you know, that's what we say. We say hashtag kids get it because they understand the urgency of these problems and they have access to tools like technology and communication that will help us address them. California kids especially. Especially. <laughs> So speaking of social media, I see that you have an Instagram account that's SC underscore environmental, where I see the hashtag no more mermaid tears. And I actually see you in a mermaid tail. So do you want to tell us a little bit about, a little bit about that? 
Absolutely. So hashtag no more mermaid tears is a campaign that I started last year. Um, and it's using social media, the power of social media to uh, raise awareness about plastic pollution and get people involved in the narrative. So I think plastic can feel like a very distant thing because most of the problems we hear around plastic are that it is swirling in the ocean, you know, so far offshore in these gyres. And I think that that can feel really out of reach to people. So what I'm trying to do is bring plastic home and help it feel a little bit more accessible with, uh, you know, easy but shocking facts, like the fact that by 2050, plastic will outweigh fish in the ocean. And to deliver these facts, we employ uh, local youth uh, in donated mermaid tails uh, with pictures of them by local youth photographers. So it's a youth movement and it's using the magic and mystery of mermaids to communicate about plastic pollution. Um, it's definitely more accessible to kids because kids love mermaids, mm -hmm. but I think that mermaids uh, represent a lot of stuff that a lot of people miss about their childhoods, even adulthood. So <laughs> it's, it's also powerful for grownups. There are a lot of bumper stickers in Santa Cruz <laughs> that people have with mermaids. Santa Cruzers especially love mermaids. I go out and do events and teach people about climate change in a mermaid tale. And the kids get excited about it, but it's frequently grown-ups who come up to me freaking out, <laughs> tell me about how much they love mermaids as a kid, and it's a really great opener to a conversation about climate change. Yeah. Um, a good note also is that I call it hashtag no more mermaid tears because mermaid tears is another word for those uh, post-production plastic nurdles that end up in our ocean. So those oh. microplastic nuggets, they're so dangerous to sea life, they lead to starvation. And so uh, that's also sort of a play on, play on plastic terminology. Oh, great. At some point here, we should go get the mermaid tail that you brought in here and show it <laughs> on the screen for anybody who's viewing this show uh, live or recorded via video. Um, that statistic you mentioned, I kind of wonder where you heard that, but that's worth saying that again. Let me see if I got it right. You said that by 2050, according to some organization, um, plastics in the oceans of the world will outweigh all fish in the ocean. That's pretty staggering. Now, of course, with a caveat, hopefully a, a good caveat, unless you and everybody we enroll in getting this problem fixed are successful, then maybe plastics will not outweigh fish in the ocean by 2050. Uh, but that's where we're headed is what you're saying. Absolutely, and I, I heard that you sound doubtful about that data point. And I'm just of course, wondering where it comes from. <laughs> we, re we did report that on Planet Watch. I'm just going to put that out there. Oh, okay. Oh, Tommy, you listened to your photography. <laughs> um, so, of course, any uh, data point that comes from predictions is even, you know, even more difficult to fact check than sort of existing numbers that we throw out. But um, I heard that, especially around the Our Oceans contest, uh, uh, conference, which I attended in D.C. in... Oh, 2016, um, and it was hosted, I believe, by uh, at least partially that NRDC was working with it, and I know that I've seen that fact on their social media, and, um, you know, it's, it's a science-based fact and a science-based prediction, uh, which is always more complicated than an existing number, like, for example, the number of plastic cups Americans use every day, but um, it is an estimate, and it sounds like you guys have reported it before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in any case, I mean, you know, it's nitpicking to question it or anything. I mean, basically there's a hell of a lot of plastic in the ocean is yeah. the upshot. We I mean, have a problem. Way too much. <laughs> and I mean, it's a good fact also because it's um, good to note that that's not just because we have more plastic in the oceans, but also because we have fewer fish in the oceans. Right. And um, so it ties into overfishing, lack of sustainable fishing, and mm. the impact of plastic on actually actively killing marine life. So, um, I mean, I'm a big fan of information that helps communicate a variety of ocean issues and the intersection 
interactions between them. So how do we get plastic out of the ocean? Well, how do we, how do we stop putting it in is kind of where you're coming yeah. from more. I, I really think it's uh, important that we work to stop the plastic flow, but um, how we get plastic to the ocean is the possibly billion dollar question, uh -huh. and depending on how much money you would put to marine life and even human health. Uh, I have a lot of faith that as science and technology develop, we will have good and uh, better opportunities to remove plastic from the ocean, but my work is definitely more about raising awareness, and so we stop just putting plastic in the ocean and don't and and specifically trying to avoid that sense of like oh you know science will take care of it we'll figure out how to pull the plastic out so it's fine to keep making plastic and using plastic and discarding plastic mm -hmm. well as i see it there are two parts of the problem of stopping the flow of plastic into the ocean one is if people are using plastic which is a given for a long time we can reduce that we'll get to that in a minute but assuming there's lots of plastic in use what do people do with the plastic when they're done with it uh, assuming they aren't reusing it over and over and over. Uh, wh what do they do? That? Most people, I don't think, just go like they throw it out a car window. They don't go to the ocean and throw it in the <laughs> ocean. There's TV commercials about how, you know, you throw it away and it ends up going through sewer drains and blah, 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 and it ends up in the ocean. But so how do we dispose better of that which we use? And then the bigger question is how do we stop using the stuff or greatly reduce using it and greatly increase reuse where where you kind of have to use it if there's anywhere so so those two things maybe you could tell us what you know about that <laughs> right so i think that 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 is a very important point of that people are rarely maliciously being like i'm going to kill some fish today and throw my plastic bag into the ocean but there is a sense that uh throwing away means that something actually goes away and so something we in the community say a lot is there is no away you don't know that when you put a plastic bag in the trash can that it won't blow into the ocean and we can actually demonstrate that a lot of trash that is supposed to go to landfills does end up in the ocean so um i think it's acknowledging that the infrastructure we have in place to deal with our waste is not fail safe um and even a lot of plastic that people believe to be recyclable is not recyclable so i think that better education about waste infrastructure is absolutely called for and then uh, I think another thing that people tend to fall back on is that there's there's really two schools of thought certainly within the environmental movement about what we do with plastic and um, I hear a lot of people saying that we need to replace plastic with compostable plastic with paper and then a fair number of people who say that really the goal is to stop this single-use society and rather than having alternatives that we can you know, use once and then throw away that are maybe more sustainable. We just need to curb our consumption as, you know, as individuals and as a society and stop ourselves from using things once, you know, period. Um, and I don't quite know where I fall on that because I think there's pros and cons to each side. But um, it's, importantly, it's important to recognize that some of the alternatives that are brought up to plastic, like compostable plastic, are not as good as they may seem. Uh, they don't compost in landfills, so people think that they'll throw them out and then they'll just dissolve. That's not how it works. Um, not everywhere is prepared to compost them, and they don't decompose in water. So those are three major detractors to compostable plastic. And I don't really see another strong alternative to plastic. I think that even as we develop new technologies that could potentially replace single-use plastic, it's very important that we're also conscious of reducing our single-use culture. Hmm. You know, Tommy read a news item just before you came on about a, a bunch of countries, uh, like no. some cities in this country, that have instituted single-use plastic bag yeah. bans. Australia just um, implemented one, too, that I didn't oh, mention. Yeah. 
Yeah, and um, we talked before the show about this, and uh, let's get down to some cases here and how we all live our regular lives. I mean, you know, plastic baggies, you know, as we used to call them, <laughs> are very handy, especially if you do make a habit of reusing them and washing them. You know, it's not that hard to wash those things, although when you wash things, especially if you're using hot water, probably some chemicals leach out. There's probably info on that, that we can talk about, but it's better than just throwing the damn thing out all the time or after one use. But uh, so, so we did talk about though. Okay, maybe admitting. I don't know if, if we are going to admit that. Yeah, they do come in handy. You know, baggies, Ziploc bags, or whatever. But are there alternatives? Uh, you can use glassware. You know, with snappable tops, or you can use plastic, like Tupperware. That's plastic, but it's more durable plastic. So talk about some of those issues of practical ways of. Uh, maybe dealing with plastic that is way better than the way a lot of people do. Right. And Joe, I don't hear anyone, you know, denying the fact that plastic is cheap, it's convenient, it saves time and money and human energy. Uh, I don't I don't know anyone who would deny that. Um, but frankly, the fact is that the alternatives we have now are more cost effective, they're convenient, they're easy to find, um, and they're really accessible. And so you know, in the past even 30 years, the alternatives to plastic that have developed mean that I think uh, it's easier than ever to live a, a life where you're consuming less waste. So, um, as you said, I love uh, reusable bags. I think that bringing a tote bag, a canvas tote bag to the grocery store is awesome. You know, paper bags are not as good because they're not reusable, but they're nowhere near as bad as plastic. Um, and frankly, I don't see any difference in convenience between my canvas bag or my paper bag and a plastic grocery bag. Uh, if anything, I think that, the, you know, the latter are more convenient because you can use them again and again. Uh, they can be a fashion statement. I just, <laughs> I just don't see, I don't see an excuse to be using plastic anymore um, in that context. In terms of single-use plastic, uh, for example, in the food industry, I am a big advocate of bringing your own container. And I think that uh, reusable straws, reusable cups, Tupperware instead of styrofoam takeout containers, that's all awesome. And it's something that I really encourage people to do. Um, and, you know, with a caveat that not everyone can afford to be thinking about that all the time. And that especially folks who are low income, um, you know, it's really a privilege to have the time and the money to seek out alternatives to plastic, uh, to be able to buy a bunch of reusable straws. So I think as people who have that privilege, using that privilege is the most important thing. And I guess the next step would be making these more environmentally friendly products more accessible in the long run. Absolutely. And accessibility is something that I think should be a part of every step of this conversation in terms of economic accessibility, uh, geographic accessibility, and even accessibility uh, by disabled people, for example, who frequently rely on single-use plastic straws to consume liquids. Um, so, you know, as we work to reduce our our environmental imprint or footprint it's it's absolutely essential that we're considering the human side of things because after all our relationship with the earth is an alliance between human and nature and we can't forget that as we as we work for a more sustainable life you know if you uh, want to get in touch with ruby and us uh, now or you know later anytime in between beyond our shows uh you can email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com we, we did get a question about politics i'm not sure if ruby wants to i love politics. go for it go for okay it. so we we got a question how should the democratic and republican parties shift their agenda to better combat climate change 
All right, so I believe, and many advocates and non-activists agree with me, that climate change is the single biggest problem our society is facing. And that means that it absolutely needs to be a part of every political conversation we have. Uh, in my opinion, environmental change is a nonpartisan issue. There's no reason for us to be divided by partisan politics on this because it's everyone's lives at stake. So I think that both parties need to work to better encompass environmentalism as a part of their platforms and especially to depoliticize it because frankly, I think both parties have uh, played a role in creating it as a partisan issue and something to fight about and something to gain points for. And in my opinion, I don't think, um, you know, I don't think either party should be scoring, scoring points for being greener than the other party <laughs> just for, you know, considering the future of our world. Or less green. <laughs> or less green, exactly. Um, and at the same time, you know, uh, I definitely am on the left side of the political spectrum, so I work more closely with Democrats uh, just in my daily advocacy. It definitely makes sense in California, um, although I've definitely met with Republican congressmen and senators and have a lot of respect for the work they're doing on climate. Um, I think Democrats need to recognize more and more that environmentalism is not a isolated issue. So if we claim to be a party that cares about social justice, we need to understand that social justice in the coming decades will be inextricably tied to environmental change. Because environmental change, climate change, pollution, they all disproportionately impact people of color, women, uh, low-income folks, and it's impossible to ignore and it's impossible to pretend that climate change is an equal opportunities problem. You just have to look at the 100 degree weathers across our, our entire country right now. Right, exactly. And, you know, at, and at the asthma rates in, uh, you know, uh, communities of color, the fact that 70% of my, uh, climate migrants are women. I think you have to look at those human demographics and look at some of the injustice that comes with climate change in order to even have the conversation. Yeah. You know, you've been doing some travel lately. You should tell us <laughs> some stories. Uh, you're obviously pretty articulate, uh, to say the least. Why, thank you. <laughs> and uh, I was actually going to ask you at some point, you must have had some influences from teachers, parents, friends that got you so charged up about this stuff. And then, of course, you have a natural talent for, <laughs> you know, speaking. Uh, but... Uh, well, okay, so I just asked you two things, and you can take them in whatever order you want. Okay. Tell us about your recent trip that you just got back from. Uh, you were with a whole big youth leadership something or other in Georgia. And then, uh, you know, the, the influences on you and, uh, you know, and how you came to be such a good speaker. And we need a lot of you. We need to clone you out there uh, big time. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, so I just returned from Atlanta, Georgia, uh, where I was with the Green Sports Alliance, which is an alliance of companies, of sports teams, and of individuals who are working to curb their carbon footprint uh, and leverage the power of major league sports in the climate conversation. Uh, and specifically, I'm on the board of their youth branch. Uh, we are CS3 Game Changers, and we host youth summits around the world where we teach young people about climate change, about plastic pollution, and we use the power of recreation and of sports to uh, really get them thinking about climate change and the way that environmental change will impact our sports world and the outdoor spaces we love. So that's what I was up to in Georgia. Um, and I had an amazing time. It was really powerful to connect with people in the private sector who are fighting for um, action on climate. And then just a few weeks ago, I was in DC with an organization called Sea Youth Rise Up. Uh, I was one of seven youth delegates from around the country and um, around the world who were there to meet with 
the Ocean Caucus in the Senate and to speak at uh, the March for Our Oceans and to uh, basically represent young people in the conversation around ocean conversa- uh, conservation. That was Sea Youth, S-E-A. Rise Up, yes, run by Danny Washington, a TV host and owner of a nonprofit or president of Blue... Pardon me, Big Blue and You, which is a really cool organization, and Sean Russell, who also runs uh, Youth Ocean Conservation Summits. And, you know, that sort of segues into the next question because those two are an incredible inspiration to me. And I think that some of my biggest role models and mentors are adults who are doing work in the conservation community and specifically those who are actively trying to include young people in the conversation like Sean, like Danny, uh, like Philippe Cousteau who runs Earth Echo International which is another group I'm on the Youth Leadership Council of. Um, He's the grandson of Jacques Cousteau and he founded this organization with the specific plan of getting educators and students involved in these issues. Uh, So, you know, a lot of my inspiration comes from other people who are doing similar work but um, a lot of it also just comes from people like my parents. Uh, neither of them is involved in sustainability. My mom is a molecular biologist and my dad is a defense lawyer. But talking about big problems early on really helped me feel like those were things I could, you know, conceivably tackle and talk about. They never made me feel like my age, my gender uh, disqualified me to talk about anything. And that was really empowering. And watching them collaborate, you know, as a someone in STEM and someone in law was, was really powerful because it helped me value the intersections of different fields that might seem unrelated to other people. By the way, I'll just explain that little acronym she threw out there, STEM. An increasing fraction of the population understands what that means, but uh, just in case you're not one of them, S-T-E-M, Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. Uh, That first started appearing about, I don't know, 12 or 15 years ago. I've been involved in that with with uh, the latter half of my life, (laughs) teaching. Uh, So, yeah, well, and you're going to go somewhere else uh, soon, right? To another big deal somewhere out, out in the country or in the world. Oh, boy, yeah. So I'm, uh, well, headed to Chicago in September um, to study a lot of things involving environmental change and to conduct research there, Um, so starting my undergraduate career. Um, But even before that, uh, I'll be hosting uh, hosting events in Santa Cruz around plastic pollution. I'm working with Environment California on their campaign to ban polystyrene or styrofoam statewide. So uh, I'll give you guys all information about a beach cleanup we are hosting on July 21st around that campaign. Mm. Um, and then in August, I'm also headed to D.C. with Earth Echo International again. So I think that, uh, you know, a really powerful thing about being a young person in environmentalism is the ability to travel, to speak to lots of audiences. Uh, the reason that I love public speaking is that it, people have handed me the mic and given me opportunities to practice. And so, you know, I'm honored to have those opportunities to go around the country, speak to audiences from five to a thousand, <laughs> and uh, practice those skills. I think the reason we don't have more kids who are doing what I do is that they haven't been handed the mic yet. And that's something that I work on as well. You know, in addition to taking the mic and talking about, you know, telling my story, talking about an environmentalism. It's also handing it off to other kids and empowering them to develop the same skills. Speaking of mics, have you ever been on the radio before? I have not. Uh, I'm so excited. First unexplored territory today. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Something I'm looking at is journalism. And, uh, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, everything from true crime to politics to environmental-focused ones. And so, yeah, it's an honor to be on the air here today and something I'm really excited about pursuing in the future. 
Not sure if uh, we've actually mentioned what Earth Echo is. Uh, did I miss something? Did I fall asleep? <laughs> no, I didn't fall asleep. I know that. But uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I remember what that is. Yeah, happy to give a brief summary. So Earth Echo International is uh, an organization founded by Philippe Cousteau, Jacques Cousteau's grandson. And we really work to carry out the legacy of Philippe's grandfather's, um, you know, life and work in terms of connecting young people to nature, connecting them to water specifically, um, and working with them so that young people can be empowered as advocates and uh, really take the helm of the environmental movement. So I've been with Earth Echo since my sophomore year, and I just graduated from my senior year of high school. Uh, and it was really my introduction to the world of international conservation because at, uh, at 14, I founded my local group and I was running beach cleanups, you know, speaking at local events, doing some youth programs here in town. But I hadn't really connected the dots and seen this whole constellation of people around the country doing work just like mine. And so when I had the honor of joining Earth Echo's YLC Youth Leadership Council with 14 other young people from ages 15 to 22, although at 15 I was the youngest, um, you know, doing similar work. It was, it was incredible. It was mind-blowing and eye-opening. And where I'd felt a little bit discouraged before, you know, a little bit lonesome, a little bit unsure if what I was doing had an impact, uh, working with them, traveling around the country with them has really helped me feel like an empowered part of the community. Um, so that's just, you know, my personal experience with Earth Echo, but beyond that, they are a very cool organization working with uh, connecting educators to water issues, with connecting girls to careers in STEM. Uh, everything they do is, I'm a big Earth Echo fangirl and I get to be a part of it. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we can post, you're, you're rattling off lots of great resources here that other people can and should become involved with. And we can post that stuff uh, on our Planet yeah, also, Watch Radio website as well as our Facebook page. We got a question asking about what that Twitter handle was that you mentioned. The, the hashtag. Or hashtag. Oh, yes. Hashtag no more mermaid tears is our mermaid campaign. I think there was another one that you might have mentioned. SC underscore. Kids get it? Oh, hashtag kids get it. Yeah, the person I know most affiliated with that is my friend Delaney Reynolds, who does youth uh, climate work in Florida. But yeah, it's all over the place now because finally people are realizing that when it comes to conservation, kids really do get it. So that's something to add to uh, tweets or posts, Facebook, Instagram, about uh, youth conservation and environmentalism. And uh, with hashtag no more mermaid tears, I'd love to give that another shout out. <laughs> uh, any mermaid related posts, but also anything related to plastic pollution and conservation is appropriate for that hashtag. And it's really helpful, um, you know, to, to use hashtags to add to your posts and give anything about environmentalism a bigger reach and impact so that, you know, we're really seen on public social media. Yeah. We're going to be the ones who are going to have to live with all that plastic. We also got another question um, asking, my friends and I are very concerned about the extreme pro proliferation of plastic clamshells for all kinds of food and all kinds of businesses. We've emailed stories about alternatives and only gotten an intelligent reply from Staff of Life. Any thoughts or comments? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so this is something that I care a lot about because... Um, Oh, gosh, until like maybe two years ago, I believed that those clamshells were recyclable. And so did everyone in my family. So we were throwing those plastic clamshells that your berries, maybe your greens come in. Mm -hmm. Oh, so 
Those little plastic containers yeah. that contain food. Yeah. I had never heard of them <laughs> referred to as clamshells. There's clamshells. Um, <laughs> and they seem recyclable because we, we tell kids as they grow up that plastic's recyclable, and they're not. So that is a big pet peeve of mine. Um, I'm hoping to get in touch with Driscoll this summer because they're frequently the producers of the clamshells. Mm. So take it to the root of the root of the issue uh, because I don't know that Staff of Life or New Leaf or Whole Foods will be able to address that head on. Right. Um, but... I think it's it's a big problem and it's something that I wish they take responsibility for because especially those in the world of agriculture are going to be hit first in terms of climate change. And so they have a vested interest in making sustainable decisions. Um, That seems like a strategy that we will probably be needing to take more often is going to the root, not just you need to stop using this plastic, but then also going to the companies who are producing this plastic and packaging their food in all this material that isn't necessarily needed. Right. I think that going to the root is absolutely important and and difficult because the root is frequently where the money is and where the power is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, addressing people who have seemingly infinite resources is really difficult because it doesn't feel like they're very motivated to help you. Um, but I would definitely encourage you and your friends to keep working on that issue. Uh, you know, if you want to connect with me on Instagram at Ruby and Rorty on uh, Instagram or at SC underscore environmental, I'd love to, you know, work with other young people. Um, I don't know if you're grown up or not, but um, work with people to raise awareness about that because uh, consumers do have do have power that they can leverage, especially when we work together and activate those networks. Uh, so I'd encourage you guys to stay involved with that and to go higher up um, because, you know, unfortunately, the people who make decisions are the people who are making those clamshells. And I don't know that it will stop until we reach them. Which is another reason to get our local officials on the same page. As oh, yeah. Something worth mentioning in this context. I don't know if we've ever talked about it on this show, but it's a major concept. Uh, in Germany, for instance, they were one of the first to do this. Uh, they have uh, laws where manufacturers have to assume responsibility for the ultimate disposal of what they make and put out there on the market. That makes sense. Uh, I think they call it producer responsibility or something right. like that. And Ruby, you probably know something about the. It's generally, I think, for more for bigger ticket items, you know, more durable things. But hey, maybe we could extend it to things like clamshells. Right. Well, and it's complicated because, you know, as small tick as clamshells may be, they will last longer than we do. You know, pieces of plastic last up to 500 years into the environment. So there really is no small ticket when it comes to plastic because every piece of plastic is lasting so long that we're leaving this plastic legacy. And, And that's really concerning to me because you can use something for five seconds and that that split second decision to 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 accept single use plastic lasts 500 years. Um, and I think that people tend to not grasp the um, the length of time that that is because as humans, we're bad with big numbers. But um, the more we can impress upon people just the severity of plastic and its impact on the environment, the better. You know, you uh, did you said on the way over today, we, we all came over in an <laughs> all-solar electric car we together. Yes. <laughs> um, 
We, uh, you were talking about what you're going to be studying there at University of Chicago, South Shore, where they have lots of good blues bars and mm. amazing deep dish pizza. But anyway, um, it's known as a very conservative uh, economic institution, but very famous and esteemed. Uh, the late great, or I don't know, I guess he's still alive, probably Milton Friedman <laughs> of the Chicago School of Economics. Very kind of right-wing economist. However, he's totally right when he says you pollute you pay, uh, th that there should be effluent taxes, there should be prices to pay for pollution. Um, you're going to be studying economics there, right in the belly of the beast, along with policy <laughs> and uh, some other stuff. And you said on the way over you wanted to talk on the air. I was mentioning that when I went to Oberlin College, another great institution, I majored in physics and government with the idea of bridging the gap between the two cultures of science and society. And you said that that related to something you wanted to talk about along those lines, about yeah. communication and... Well, uh, my passion, really academically, but also in my environmental work, is the idea of bridging these gaps in the existing conservation movement. Because for a long time, we've allowed our movement to sort of be divided into branches, policy, activism, science, and the private sector, and to not have strong communication between, between those branches. And that's something that's not only frustrating, but it could be a serious obstacle in our attempts to save the world and save ourselves. So that's a big concern of mine, and taking that into consideration, my plan is to study a variety of things, um, and specifically where they intersect in the context of environmental change. Uh, so that includes economics, it includes public policy, uh, you know, hard sciences, and journalism and communication. And, uh, you know, I don't quite know how it'll work out. I don't know that I will find passion in as I start to take these classes, but um, I think the idea is to, is to emphasize the intersectionality of environmental change as a problem. The same way in social justice movements, we're starting to look at the intersection of different systems of oppression like racism and sexism. We need to start looking at the ways in which environmental concerns intersect, how climate change impacts plastic pollution, how the economics of environmental change impact people's lives and the health risks of pollution. So, um, you know, I think all of that's really important and I'm really excited. Uh, in terms of joining the belly of the beast, I don't know. Um, our, our economics department definitely has a conservative reputation, but I'm also no stranger into being the only young person in a space or the only woman, uh, woman in a space um, because my background is a lot of working in labs and being in STEM. Um, I think that a fresh voice shaking things up is rarely unwelcome. And because University of Chicago's legacy is intellectual openness and um, promotion of free speech and new ideas, I'm really excited to be a part of that and to be bringing the issue of climate change into um, into that economics department. You're listening to Planet Watch right now with Ruby Rorty, an environmental youth educator here in Santa Cruz, California. Ruby, if young aspiring environmental leaders want to get in touch with you, where can they contact you? So they can reach me on social media. I'm Ruby and Rorty on Instagram. That's R-U-B-Y-A-N-N-R-O-R-T-Y. So no E on Ann. Or my environmental organization at SC underscore environmental on Instagram. I'll also give out my email if you want to contact me about joining a campaign, getting involved, or collaborating. It's rubyannrorty at gmail.com. Again, R-U-B-Y-A-N-N-R-O-R-T-Y at gmail.com. Yeah, we'll be interested in whatever statistics you harvest as a result of this show. Like <laughs> if you have a, a uh, spike in uh, email contacts, that we'll would be see. great. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, um, 
getting back just for a moment. We we got a few minutes left in the show. Got to have save four or five minutes for some fun stuff relating to Ooh. the sky and everything. But um, well, this may take longer. But we we're talking about the chemical uh, health impacts from plastics. You know things like BPA and estrogens. And by the way, before we get into that, I should say something that had not even reached my attention until I was a college student uh, is that plastics are made from fossil fuels. <laughs> and it's an interesting question. I mean, you could think, well, a lot of the fossil fuels are, the carbon is sequestered in those plastics. Of course, it eventually gets back in the environment. However, there must be considerable release of carbon in the manufacture of plastics because it's probably a heat intensive process i've never actually looked into how much carbon escapes into the atmosphere as you're making plastics with carbon intensive compounds but anyway something to think about something to learn about and then the health the health impacts chemical whatever yeah i mean that's something that i've been very vocal about talking anytime we're talking about plastic pollution it's worth talking about the human health impacts because that's what people care about you know if you're not thinking about the sea turtles being you know starved to death when they consume plastic think about your kids um the fact that 99 percent of americans over age 12 test positive for bpa should be concerning to us uh, now bpa is an endocrine disruptor which means it acts like a hormone um, you know, I don't have a chemistry degree, so feel free to write in and correct me, but um, that means we don't quite understand how it works with our body yet, but it's definitely unpredictable and um, it's scary. Endocrine disruptors are scary and they're not things we should be willfully putting in our body. Uh, what ends up in the ocean ends up in you, uh, in our drinking water, but also in the fish we eat. And when so much of the world relies on seafood as its main source of protein, that's really scary and it's very real. So that's again, the human side of, of uh, plastic. And it's, you know, as much as we think of plastic as modern and essential to independence or convenient living, uh, the long-term impacts are very scary. Maybe, Tommy, uh, you could fetch that mermaid tail over there. <laughs> we could just flash it up on the screen. She uh, goes and does things, you know, public events, educational events, sometimes in a mermaid costume. It's a fun time. <laughs> so This thing is part of it anyway is made out of plastic. But anyway, let, let me hold it up here. All so up. all of these are donated to my organization. Uh, this one is from Suntail Mermaids, but we also have... Uh, one from Fin Fun Mermaids, and so I'm so I'm so honored that mermaid companies uh, have decided that ocean conservation is an important part of their message, and uh, honored to have these donations. They're so a was, great way to get involved. And that was the fin, and then here's the uh, fabric uh, made out of something or other, absolutely, or, or whatever that uh, she stuffs her legs down into. I guess it helps you do a good butterfly stroke oh, when you're yeah. swimming in the ocean. <laughs> and uh, if you do check out my Instagram, I'll try and get some mermaid pictures in the studio if these kids are down. Oh, yeah. Um, we can take some pictures after see a mermaid show. on air. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, gosh, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Any final thoughts or questions here? Or thank you guys so much. It's an honor. Thanks yeah. for being here. Yeah, thank you for coming on. It's really inspirational to hear somebody younger than me come on and have so much energy and passion about what she's doing. Yeah, I think young people can bring a lot of passion to the conversation, and I, I hope young people listen today, uh, you know, can get involved or get more involved. I'd love to talk to any, you, any of you about your environmental journeys, uh, no matter where you are on that path. Yeah, young, young and old, and I'm sure you can hold your own <laughs> against all these conservatives uh, and non-believers in that we're, humans have any significant in, 
back on the inquiry, you're going to be able to hold your own in the many arguments you're going to be encountering. Absolutely. I come from a place of collaboration. So, <laughs> you know, it doesn't always have to be an argument with uh, people who don't necessarily come from a place of prioritizing climate change. But uh, if it does turn into a debate, I can absolutely hold my own. <laughs> yeah. And win them over. Just win them over, you know? Oh, yeah. Like you're winning us over. you got to win the world over. We all got to win the world over. <laughs> Uh, well, speaking of the world, <laughs> um, yesterday, this is a little bit passe, but yesterday was International UN Recognized Asteroid Day. Uh, Read about it in the Times. June 30th, the reason being that, um, well, on June 30th of 1908, a, one of the biggest ever in human history documented asteroid near impacts happened. A stony asteroid came in over Tunguska exploded. It was an airburst about 10 kilometers, about six miles above Tunguska in Siberia. Leveled trees for 800 miles in all directions. Uh, hardly any trace, uh, if any, was left of the original rock. I mean, it wow. all just evaporated, but it had this humongous shock wave. And, um, well, there happens to be, I think I said it on an earlier show, the second biggest asteroid in our asteroid belt. The biggest one is Ceres, C-E-R-E-S, but the second biggest is actually the brightest one, Vesta, V-E-S-T-A, because it has, uh, nobody understands exactly why its uh, coating, its surface seems to be especially bright, highly reflective. Uh, it has a high albedo, there's a science term for you, A-L-B-E-D-O, that's sort of a measure of the reflectivity of something. By the way, the albedo of the Earth, including snow, ice, oceans, is about 30%. So 30% of the sunlight that comes into the Earth, 30% of it just goes right back out to space via reflection. But anyway, this asteroid Vesta is, uh, is uh, visible, very visible, more visible than it's been in decades now. You can actually see it in the naked eye if you're with the naked eye for another week or two, if you're in especially dark area but uh with binoculars uh if you go to skyandtelescope.com you can download a little map that shows where it is amongst the uh barely visible stars over the next it's uh, it's near saturn uh wandering around in the constellation of sagittarius um so uh one last thing i gotta say happy new fiscal year <laughs> this today is july 1st oh and by the way if my sister ann is listening in virginia who we interviewed here live uh front on christmas eve uh, but she'll probably hopefully catch it on the podcast but it's her birthday today oh. happy, um, birthday. Happy, birthday. happy birthday to ann but also happy f new fiscal year everybody now the federal government's new fiscal year is october 1st but state governments and cities uh, many of those have july 1st if i could get in really quick it is also the start of what we call plastic free july and so that can mean you know going totally zero waste but also if you haven't started any sort of plastic free journey yet what about saying no to straws or saying no to styrofoam cups cups this month or water bottles or water bottles exactly that's one of my biggest pet peeves and so it's awesome and it's a great time to do it because you'll be joined by an international community of people who are trying to cut down their uh, plastic implant thank okay. you so much for coming ruby that's planet watch for this week with your host Maya rodriguez joe jordan and tommy martin keep an eye on the sky catch the podcast at planetwatchradio.com thanks for listening bye-bye Thank you.